Have you heard about the 2018 study that showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? No? Well, now you have. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, a company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. I remember staring at my prenatal vitamins and finding all these things I was trying to avoid. High amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and unnecessary ingredients. So, at four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual because I believe that all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. I'm so proud of our prenatal vitamin. The ingredients are 100% traceable, it's third-party tested for microbes and heavy metals, and recently received the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. You see, we trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. But don't just take my word for it. Trace for yourself with 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today we start out where we left off on last week's episode in the murder of Sierra Joggin, which was the search warrants that led to the arrest of James Dean Worley. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, stop everything you're doing and head over there before you listen to this one. This isn't a case where you're going to want to miss anything. It is insane and horrific and everything your nightmares have ever been made of. You have been warned. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. left off last week's episode with the beginning of the search warrant documents that the members of Web Sleuths were able to get a hold of. They talked about how authorities found a shirt with what looked like blood on it, condoms, duct tape, human restraints, blood on the walls of James Dean Worley's secret room, you know, serial killer shit. But the list goes on and on and on. James had previously been arrested for being in possession of a firearm under a disability, which is something we went over in the Todd and Kyla case. This doesn't mean that James is on disability or that he has one. The term disability here means that he's not legally allowed to own a gun, and in his case, it's because he's a felon. But that didn't stop him. In fact, James didn't just have one or two guns. He had three In his home, they found a Smith & Wesson 915, which is a semi-automatic pistol. The gun has the capacity of holding 15 rounds in the magazine and one more in the chamber. But as far as I can tell, only two bullets were found in the magazine. So where are the others? Did he only load two? I'm from Virginia, and here we only need a permit if we want to conceal our weapon. Otherwise, as long as you're not a felon, you can walk around with it on your hip if you want to. Seriously, my husband and I saw this lady walking to her mailbox the other day with a pistol just chilling on her hip. I've seen damn near everyone I know load a gun magazine, and I honestly don't think I can recount one instance where someone loaded less than the full capacity, let alone just two bullets. But anywho, the second gun found was a CBC 22 LR, which is a long gun or a rifle. It was locked and loaded with a round in the chamber. The third gun was another long gun, a New England FA single shot break open. You basically open the barrel, shove a bullet in, and you're ready to go. This gun was not loaded. And as the warrant goes on, it just gets creepier, but you probably assume that at this point. In his attic, they found six shell casings, 
When you initially think about this, you're probably like, oh, that's weird, but let's move on. But let's dig a little deeper. There weren't any bullet holes in the attic, so those rounds weren't shot up there. It's normal for people to shoot guns in the country. You almost expect to hear the sound. Landowners usually either leave the shell casings on the ground or they pick them up and throw them out. But that's not what James did. He picked up six shell casings and put them in his attic. When police crawled down into the crawl space in James's basement, they found a shoe charm. Shoe charms are these cutesy little things that you put on your laces for decoration. They're not super popular now, but they were in the 80s and the 90s and most frequently worn by women. I don't know a ton of women who enjoy crawl spaces or wearing their favorite shoes they've adorned with charms when they're in one. So tell me, how does a single shoe charm get untangled from a lace and wind up in the basement crawl space of a man who lives alone? Police wound up taking some swabs for testing while they were down there, so I don't think this what-the-fuck moment was lost on them. Police move on to that secret dungeon in the barn with that creepy human-holding freezer that we don't know much about yet. And they have my attention. The fact that I'm reading about carpet samples that were submitted into evidence from a freezer is mind-blowing enough. The fact that they took a carpet sample from a seat in the freezer is on another level. Not only were the walls and floors of this freezer carpeted, but he had installed a seat, which he then also carpeted. That wouldn't have been for soundproofing. That would have been for comfort. Now, remember those pairs of underwear they found? On the first log that mentions undergarments, every single pair was white, four large and one extra large. Then I read the brand name beside where they were submitted into evidence, and they were Prevail undergarments, which isn't underwear, it's adult diapers. In a photo I found of a small corner of James's massive, and I mean massive, barn, I counted three packages of these adult diapers. They weren't in a bathroom. They weren't even in a building that had a bathroom. These particular pairs of underwear weren't something James kept as trophies. These were something he gave out because whoever was chained up in this barn and bleeding all over the walls wasn't allowed out to use the bathroom. And that's something you would have to learn over time. That's a problem you encounter and you come up with a solution. Which begs the question, how many people have been down there? There's another document that mentions another pair of underwear, but it doesn't specify what kind or size. But with it, they also find a sports bra. They were in one of the bedrooms, not in his barn, but in his house. James's property was his sadistic playground, not just his barn. In yet another document from this gem obtained by the members of Web Sleuths, they find a pair of small pink women's underwear with bloodstains on it. It was in a green crate sitting in the middle of the barn. Also in the crate, a fucking sandwich placed neatly in a little baggie along with a hood, a blanket, and a hairbrush. This looks a lot like a goodie basket for his victims. He chains you up and puts you in adult underwear, but makes you sandwiches and gives you a blanket. 
Continuing on, as police were scouring this barn, they found straws, and James doesn't strike me as the straw-sipping kind of guy, but it is hard to hold a drink in your hand when you're chained, in literal, actual chains, which they also found. Not only did they find chains, officers found what they refer to as a metal hanging device that James had installed into the ceiling, and they didn't find just one, they found two. Think of every single kidnapping scene from every Criminal Minds episode you've ever watched. When someone is chained up, how many chains are hanging from the ceiling? Let that simmer for a second. Also in the barn, they find a small red toolbox, and in any normal toolbox, you'd probably expect to find a couple screwdrivers, a hammer, maybe a wrench or two, but in James's toolbox, they found a necklace and two sets of handcuffs. In a pink basket, this guy had a lot of baskets, they found a small pair of light blue glasses. James is anything but small. He's over six feet tall, and I checked every photo I could find of him before his arrest, in his mugshot, and during his court appearances, and the only glasses I ever saw were never on his face, were only on his shirt, and looked to be readers. There was a lot of evidence taken from the cornfield where Sarah's bike was found, and I was really surprised at how much of it was blood evidence. No one had ever mentioned finding blood when everyone was out searching for her. Eventually, we learned about the blood on the motorcycle helmet, but there was a lot more than that. We're talking swabs from leaves and even swabs from the corn stalks themselves. As I kept reading, I almost skimmed right past a little detail. In the cornfield, they found a plastic glove. How many men wear plastic gloves when riding their motorcycles? Scratch that. How many anyone wears plastic gloves when riding motorcycles? James told police that he moved one of the two bikes he claimed were there when his bike broke down and he pulled over to the side of the road. He told them that because he knew that police would find his fingerprints on it. So it doesn't sound like he was wearing this glove or gloves when he attacked Sierra. But remember, James's cell phone pinged near the abduction site for two full hours the night Sierra went missing. Had he gone back after dark to try and clean it up? There have been a lot of questions about this secret room. We know it was concealed by bales of hay and locked with a ratchet strap, but was it something he built into the main barn? Was it the second floor of the barn or was it beneath the barn? I scoured these search warrants and evidence logs and they mention a single red lantern. Beside the description of this lantern, they listed where it was found and it read on top of hatch, which makes me think that this secret room may have been beneath the barn and he needed to use that lantern to see when he went down there. This would mean that the bales of hay were on top of the hatch and the ratchet strap was fixed to something on either side making sure that no one could ever lift it up from below. It also means that there were no windows and no way for anyone to ever know that someone was ever down there. Whoever was down there, whenever they were down there, they were in complete darkness chained and likely fed sandwiches he kept in a little green crate with the blanket he offered them. 
On August 10th of 2016, the Fulton County Expositor reports that Sierra's autopsy report is finally in and that her cause of death is listed as asphyxiation and that she likely died within minutes. The asphyxiation was due to a plastic gag they found still in her mouth. James never even took the gag out. Now, ball gags aren't anything uncommon, and plenty of people use them for consensual bondage, and people don't generally die from their use. So was there tape over it, making it so she couldn't breathe? How did this ball gag cause her death? One of Sierra's front teeth were chipped during whatever happened to her that night, and it's speculated by WTOL that the gag is what chipped the tooth. But a part of me wonders if it's more likely that her tooth was chipped during their struggle in the cornfield. The blood found on James's motorcycle helmet was his, and it was his palm print. So after being bloodied because Sierra fought back, he grabbed that helmet. Did he hit her with it? Did that chip her tooth? Did the blood on his bike come from her mouth? When Sierra's body was found, the gag was still in her mouth, her hands were cuffed behind her back, and her ankles were taped together. James had quote-unquote hogtied her arms and ankles together behind her back with a rope. There was no evidence of sexual assault. WTOL reports that there weren't any signs of significant trauma to Sierra's body, but we know that she bled from something because her blood was found on James's bike. If she wasn't injured, or at least not to the point of noting it on her autopsy report, whose blood was all over the walls of that secret room in the carpeted freezer? On August 16th, the Toledo Blade reports that a grand jury was convened and officially indicted James. And not just for one charge or two or five or seven, he was indicted on 19 different counts. Two counts of abduction, four counts of kidnapping, two counts of felonious assault, two counts of murder, two counts of aggravated murder, two counts of aggravated robbery, possession of criminal tools, tampering with evidence, abuse of a corpse, and two counts of possessing weapons under a disability. Initially, the multiple charges for kidnapping and murder had me thinking maybe they found another body, but it looks like they're breaking down the charges individually to make sure that James is served the hottest, most heaping pile of justice possible. The counts of the kidnapping charges have been broken down into terrorizing or serious harm, engaging in sexual activity, which is interesting since the autopsy indicated that there were no signs of sexual assault, removing her from the place she was found, and restraining her liberty. The abduction charges are broken down into removing her from the place she was found and restraining her liberties. Abduction and kidnapping laws are super similar in Ohio. The assault charges were broken down into being seriously harmed and with a weapon or ordinance, and an ordinance is defined as a mounted gun or artillery. The murder counts are broken down by causing death or unlawful termination of a pregnancy, and in Sierra's case, I have no reason to believe she was pregnant, so I think it's the causing death portion of that charge. And the second murder charge is for committing a murder while also committing a first or second degree felony. According to WTOL, the prosecutor is 100% seeking the death penalty, and I cannot think of a more deserving asshole. On August 18th, James Worley is arraigned on his charges. He tunes in via video conference and never once looks up at the camera. Sierra's family sits there in the pews just watching, but they're not alone. According to NBC24, the sister of Lori Ann Hill is there with them. 
You'll remember Lori Ann from last week's episode as being the sister of a young girl she believes James murdered decades ago. The news station quotes Lori's sister as saying, I realize right this minute that her family wants him on death row. I don't. I want him in a wheelchair in general population. I want him to suffer until they fix him again. Put him back in general population and he suffers again. He is a sick, disgusting beast. And this woman is my favorite. James is due in court again on September 8th. About a week later, Sierra's boyfriend Josh steps out into the public eye for really the first time since his girlfriend was murdered, and he does not disappoint. In every single action or emotion we've seen or heard from Josh, he's the kind of guy every girl deserves, and this time is no different. In Sierra's honor, he organized this huge group motorcycle ride, which he calls Keeping Our Girls Safe. And with the proceeds, he paid up front for any women in the area who wanted to take self-defense classes. He plans to host these regularly to keep the classes consistently available to any and all women in the area who want to learn how to defend themselves from unsuspecting predators like James Dean Worley. This guy is incredible. September 8th rolls around and everyone wonders if James is going to plead guilty or not guilty. Maybe there will be talk of a plea deal to avoid the death penalty. Maybe he'll just confess to everything he's done and to whom he's done it to. But let's be real. James isn't the confessing type. This is the guy who wrote a letter to the judge to get released early in 1993, saying that everything that happened during his 1990 abduction was his victim's fault. As he walked into the courtroom, all you could hear were his shackles, which were kind of eerily poetic. He had shackled who knows how many women, and those women are the reason he will forever be chained. When it's time for James to enter his plea, he shocked absolutely no one when he pled not guilty, which means this is going to trial, and this trial, which isn't set to happen until September of 2017, is going to be horrifying. Taking a plea is like admitting to what you did and then going into hiding. Pleading not guilty is like giving the world your crime diary and the courts can and will go over every strand of hair you've ever touched in your life, every person you've ever made feel uncomfortable, and every carpeted seat in your dungeon freezer. This trial will be more than any of us are ready for. A lot of people were upset about the trial being set a full year from then and justifiably feel like it was an unnecessarily long wait, but frankly, that's fast, especially in a case like this where there's an overwhelming amount of evidence to go through and an overwhelming amount of DNA testing and comparing to be done. This has also been a highly publicized case, naturally so, and in a really, really small community. I'm willing to bet we see a motion for a change of venue and a long and drawn out jury selection process. I would be shocked if it actually happened that soon. Two months later, seemingly out of nowhere, in November of 2016, ABC 13 reports that County Road 7 near Road K has been blocked off and that the FBI were seen with canines digging at the scene where Sierra's body was found. Her body was found completely intact, so what exactly were they looking for or who? 
WTOL reports that they were just doing their due diligence to make sure nothing was left behind, but this was months later. Evidence flags were placed into the ground and later officers were seen using shovels to dig at those marked areas. It sounds to me like those canines made some hits, but ultimately authorities say that no further evidence was found. Cases tend to go dormant in between arrests and trials, but these little tidbits that did come really lit a fire of curiosity within the community, knowing what they'd found earlier and knowing how many potential victims James might really have. Everyone's curiosity is at its peak right now. Sierra's family, however, has been anything but dormant, not for a second. They've been fighting for Ohio State Legislature to implement something I've mentioned time and time again. They want to start a violent offender registry, which they plan to call Sierra's Law, and the Ohio Attorney General is on board. Finally, someone is taking action, and if this gets passed because of Sierra, she is more of a hero than we could ever put into words. A violent offender registry could and would save so many lives. Some people aren't as on board as others, wondering what good knowing someone's past would do, but if you know a guy likes to abduct young women on bikes and he lives down your street, you may think twice about biking down your street alone. Had anyone known what James had done in 1990, I'm willing to bet that damn near everyone would have taken precaution. WTOL does an interview with the Attorney General of Ohio, and he makes an important distinction. He says that they're looking into James Worley for more possible murders. People and the press have consistently referred to James as a serial offender, but it's important that we call a spade a spade here. We're not looking at a known serial offender. We're looking at a potential serial killer. People don't build torture dungeons in the hopes of eventually releasing their victims. I think once you've carpeted your freezer, you've probably passed the point of no return. Months pass, and on February 8th, the state files for permission to continue DNA testing. We already know they had a ton of blood evidence that needed to be identified, specifically the blood in the freezer, the blood on the walls of the dungeon, and the walls of that carpeted freezer. But generally, there's no limit to testing the victim in the accused's blood, and this isn't a continuance asking for more time or an extension of time. This motion is asking for permission for something. Are they trying to compare the DNA to other people? Did they already find out that the blood was neither James nor Sierra's and now need to branch out and figure out exactly whose blood it belongs to? It would make sense that they need to file a motion for this to make sure it was still in alliance with the case at hand and pertaining to James's trial and Sierra's murder. I can see any defense attorney trying to fight that, that if the blood isn't Sierra's, since she's the victim James is on trial for, it isn't relevant. And I hate that because I want justice for all of James's potential victims. But again, this is the criminal justice system, not the victim's justice system. On February 11th, Sierra would have turned 21, but her family is left to celebrate her life without her. On March 7th, James Worley has another hearing, and it's what we all hate to hear, but it's expected in a case this big. His trial is no longer coming up in six months. It's now been pushed to January of 2018, and the wait for justice is excruciating and infuriating. But I'll always use Casey Anthony as an example as to why waiting is always the best option. No one pushes a court date back because it's fun. It's pushed back because people are working their asses off and feel like they need more time to make sure that they convict a son of a bitch, and this particular son of a bitch needs to be convicted. 
Casey Anthony went to trial way too early and we all know damn well when they found her not guilty. It wasn't because she was innocent, it was because they went to court with a weak case. Weak cases allow for people like James Dean Worley to move to another small town unsuspecting of anything only to wreak the same havoc he has time and time again and that mistake has already been made once in this case. This time has to be different not only for Sierra but for all of his other potential victims and any of his future victims should he ever breathe another breath of fresh air outside of prison walls. In April of 2017, Sierra's family files a civil wrongful death suit against James, which is much easier to win than a criminal trial, and they can request damages. In their case, they want his assets, the land, the farm, the barn, and they want it so they can burn it to the fucking ground. Okay, maybe they didn't say that, but ABC 13 does state that they want to tear it down, and I cannot describe how soul-satisfying this would be to watch. I feel like you'd be able to see angels being released or something. Maybe I watch too much TV. On June 8th, 2017, James has a motions hearing, which is basically just going over a bunch of wants, rules, regulations from either side. And this time, James doesn't show up in shackles. This jack wagon was wearing a striped polo like he was Tom freaking Hanks or something. Most of the arguments are about the media and whether or not they'll be allowed in the courtroom or when they can or can't interview James at whatever point in time. July 19th, 2017 passes and the tall corn on either side of County Road 6 is a haunting reminder of what happened exactly a year ago to date. A storm rolls through and it honestly just kind of matches the mood, the gray clouds, the rain on the roof. But then a rainbow, scratch that, a double rainbow forms across the entire little town, and it's almost like a message from Sierra. Josh's aunt took pictures and posted them to WebSleuth, so I'll share them with you guys in Sierra's highlight at the top of my Instagram at the Heather Ashley. It's beautiful and, frankly, something I think everyone needed at the exact time that they got it. James has a pretrial hearing on the same day, one year after he abducted and murdered Sierra, and at this hearing, I shit you not, he requests a freaking Kindle, saying that he wants to read through all the evidence, which at this point is tens of thousands of pages of documents. Color me an asshole, but no, you can have your attorney print that shit out and you can pray that you don't get 40,000 paper cuts. WTOL reports that the court will now allow James to be transported twice a week from jail to the actual courthouse to meet with his attorneys, citing his attorney who said James wasn't conducive to proper give and take. So basically, James still thinks the rules don't apply to him and frankly, he's kind of being told through action yet again that they kind of don't. When someone constantly bucks the system and the system constantly gives in, nothing is going to change. On that note though, they don't give the shitbag a Kindle, so we'll file that one as a win. On July 30th, the Toledo Blade gets an interview with Sierra's mom, who we haven't heard from yet. This has been a very internal grieving process for the families, as far as I can tell, so I was shocked when I saw it. She said that the prosecutors asked her if she would consider a plea deal for James, and this isn't uncommon in death penalty cases. It's actually probably one of the main uses of the death penalty as a bargaining chip, details in return for your life. But she told them no, and I think that was a bold and badass move on her part. She told the Toledo Blade that unless he gave his other victims' families the closure they deserve, she wouldn't consider it. And that, my friends, is a strong and bold and badass woman right there. 
fighting not only for her daughter, but for all the other unknown women who we know he victimized. Josh holds another motorcycle ride in honor of Sierra and more than 1,000 people rode in her honor. That's one more zero than 100. Can you imagine seeing that ride by? The last one he did paid for more than 200 women to take self-defense classes and this one is expected to pay for even more. At the ride, Josh speaks and it's so heartbreaking and moving and inspiring and just all the motivational words that exist. The Toledo Blade quotes him as he says, I want everyone to get on their phones, text somebody, I don't care if it's your mom, your husband, somebody, and say you love them. That's the last thing I said, and I don't know where I'd be today if she didn't know that. And I can safely assume that 1,000 people needed tissues right then. In late August, James has another pretrial hearing that's just making sure everything is still on track to go to trial, and it looks like everything is. They do the same in December, and they start talking jurors. According to WTOL, they have a pool of 250 who have already filled out their questionnaires, so everything is looking like the trial is going to start next month, and it's expected to last for four weeks. Imagine being called for jury duty and being told that you'll be out of work for a full month, and this... This is the case you're going to be deciding the fate of. But just like that, the trial is postponed again until March. I just collectively heard all of your eyes roll. It's cool though. Mine did too. According to the Toledo Blade, the defense hired an expert to comb over James's past, including but not limited to his upbringing, and James's sister sprung a three-foot stack of papers on them that they feel will significantly impact their case, and they need more time to adequately assess everything. But it's only two months. It's been a whole year and a half at this point. We can hang on for two more months if it means locking this monster up for life and throwing away the key, or in his case, deciding whether or not he'll be given the chance to live another day. A choice he took away from an incredible, smart, and beautiful human being. According to WTOL, this motion to postpone, which was granted, didn't come without a twist. It turns out that the plea offer happened. He was given what they refer to as a written plea deal, which if taken would allow him to avoid the death penalty. However, his attorneys don't know what they're going to do with it, which sounds to me like it comes with some clear stipulations. My guess, information on all previous victims, including who they were, what he did to them, and where they are now. And for someone who can't seem to admit fault, I don't see him accepting it. But we'll know his decision by the next pretrial hearing on February 12th. And on February 12th, they don't even discuss it. The trial is on. On March 5th, jury selection begins. WTOL says James told the judge that the late hours during the jury selection process have been keeping him from getting enough sleep and literally no one cares. If you get really, really quiet, you can almost hear Squidward in the background playing the world's tiniest violin. On March 12th, 2018, the trial of James Dean Worley officially begins. And that is where I leave you today. Next week, you'll get part three of this case and we will dive headfirst into this trial, which will unravel every detail we could never imagine. 
For more photos from this case, check out Sierra's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley. If you like your podcast ad free, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just $1 a month, all of your episodes are totally ad free. If you need more episodes in your life for just $5 a month, you get a bonus episode on the first Monday of every month. Cough. Next Monday is the first Monday in May. Cough. You'll also receive a forever discount code for all Big Mad True Crime merch. And of course, anytime you sign up, you will get instant access to all previous bonus episodes. Join me tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern for Crime Talk Live, where you go live with me on my Instagram at the Heather Ashley, and we talk about the craziness that is this case. I'll be bringing you part three one week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. say request request oh my goodness what is wrong with me i'll fucking wait loudest amazon guy ever the loudest dog ever that is a very pink shirt nope (laughs) don't put that in there too aggressive why can't i say motorcycle (laughs) don't put that in there too aggressive